0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkietown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkietown, please visit our website at www.dirkietown.org. You can be seated Children to Children's Church and uh, you to James uh, chapter number two. James, chapter number two. I have just a little bit to say about the end verse of chapter one, but uh, primarily James two. So we've been enjoying a very fruitful time of study and discussion on Wednesday night uh, out of the book of James. Kind of a concentrated thing we're doing. Six thirty, James at St. James. You're all welcome to that. Uh, The room is full each week. This week we'll be doing kind of an overview of chapter 3. And I want to remind you we're doing that as well as a Sunday school class in James because we can only cover so much in a sermon. And this book is just full of great truth for us to pay attention to. So uh, just let me encourage you Wednesday night, 6.30, James at uh, St. James. We've been encouraging you, of course, to read James each week, as many times as as you can, just five chapters, Uh, but to, as James would say, look intently at the law of liberty. You know, as I read it, I'm confronted by a variety of concerns that James has for the church. As you read it, you also will be confronted by concerns, and as you are confronted by those things, as the Spirit of God brings those things to your life, You have to make some decisions, don't you, about what you're going to do with the things that the Spirit brings to your attention. James, of course, would say, be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. But, you know, I don't think uh, we're going to all be impacted in the same way. This book has, has got a lot of concern, and some of it will hit us, and others it won't hit us. But I think there is a concern That I'm going to talk about today, that James brings up, as it were, he puts his apostolic finger on it, and this is a shared concern. This, This is for the whole of congregational life. James wants to know if, in the sight of God and our Father, we practice what he calls at the end of chapter number one, pure an undefiled religion that that is a large concern for everyone in the church do you practice a pure and undefiled religion and i'm very grateful that james frames this within the context of the god who sees notice that in chapter 1 verse 27 pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our god and father so before he defines what it is, he wants us to know that our practices are first in the sight of God before they are in the sight of other people. That seems strange. We might think it should be uh, simultaneously. We do God sees. I, you know, serve God sees. But that, that's not what James is saying, and this is really going to have a bearing into our text in chapter number 2. You see, we assume our religious practices are judged only or primarily by what other people see us do. But James isn't going to allow us to misjudge the situation. While it is true that our religious practices are carried out in the sight of people, we have to remember they are first seen by God. They're first seen by God. And we say, well, how is it that God sees first? It's because he sees the inward attitude that produces then the outward action. And this is James' concern for the church. And, he, and he's constantly moving from the inside of us to the outside of us. And he, he is not going to allow us to misjudge the situation. He is not going to allow us to rest comfortably even though, you know, persecution may abound or displacement may abound. He confronts us with the internal issues by telling us it is the God who sees. He sees our inward attitudes before the action happens. And in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2, we will see that if we are to have a pure and undefiled Religion, in the sight of the God who sees, then we must pay as much attention to our inward attitudes as to our outward actions. If you're using the commentary by Motier and you read through this section, you might have noted, as I did, when he writes, "Religion is a comprehensive word for the specific ways." in which a heart relationship to God is expressed in our lives religion comprehensive word that expresses our heart relationship to God as it is often lived out in action Motier picks up on the concern that James has that religion is not primarily external because it flows from inward attitudes and we must well How comprehensive a word is this? Well, in in chapter 1, we've already seen in verse 21 and verse 26, verse 27, that James is pointing to outward actions that can actually lead us to death, to a loss of spiritual vitality. And then here in in verse number 1 of chapter 2, he gives us another way in which We can be led to death spiritually, and that is if we have the wrong motivation, the wrong inward attitude. You know, I've preached this sermon first always to myself multiple times throughout the week, and as I preached it down at St. James earlier, I preach it here as well with this question in mind, because so many of us are seasoned Christians, have a long experience in church. I had to ask myself this question, am am I as concerned about guarding and maintaining right inward actions as I am about making sure that people see me doing the outward external things? Or am I thinking more about what you might think of me in the external things that I do? This is what James is getting at for the church dispersed. And uh, as he does this, it, it kind of drives into us. We'd like to look respectable in our religious practices. But James says, well, wait a second. The God who sees sees what is really driving those actions from the inside. So he confronts us then with two questions implied at least in verse 1. Do you have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? And I'm not going to assume everyone, you know, everyone does. And if you don't, that's a conversation I would love to have with you about what does it actually mean to be a Christian? To hold faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, James would say, don't hold that faith with inward attitudes of personal favoritism. I suspect everyone in this room has been hurt by someone disregarded you in favor of someone else. And I'm also going to assume that everyone in the room has done that as well. And I find it fascinating that, again, writing to a group of Christians under duress, James, James is confronting. He's not pulling any punches. And here's why. Just because people are powerless doesn't mean that they can't be abusers. People who are powerless can always find people with even less power and abuse them. When I go to Dunkin' Donuts to get my wife something, nothing against Dunkin' Donuts workers or minimum wage workers, but I'm quickly reminded that the person behind the counter is is exercising power in his or her little domain, and sometimes, I mean, it comes across as quite oppressive. And I, and I, of course, because I want to get my wife her donut, I have to, right? Okay, smile, pay, leave a tip, be kind. But, but this is how it works. It, it isn't only the people with the most power who, who abuse power. And James is driving into this, the shared concern about personal favoritism. If a man walks into your assembly with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, and there comes also in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, here, sit in a good place, and you say to the poor man, hey, go stand over there, sit down here at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with what? What is it? What, is the, what are the last two words of verse four? Become judges with what? Evil motives. Evil attitudes. That's an inward to an outward response. Our spiritual vitality is at stake. If you you conduct your religious practices with inward attitudes that judge with evil motivation, you're on a path, James says, that leads to spiritual death, a loss of spiritual vitality. But James has uh, a much larger concern in mind with this issue, because what he says also in verse number one is that you are devaluing the glorious... Lord Jesus Christ. So, so when we, with evil motives, judge people in the assembly, we not only put ourselves on a path of spiritual death, but we devalue the most glorious person who has ever walked the face of the earth. We devalue our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Thus the question in verse number 5, who did, who did God choose? Who did God choose? Did God choose the, the, the wealthy person who comes to God and says, here's God what I can do for you. Or did God choose the person who understands their own spiritual poverty? And because they understand their own spiritual poverty, they then see others as impoverished as well, regardless what they may be wearing or driving, what external signs it might look like, education or status, whatever. They're working from right motivations. So who did God choose? Well, he chose the poor of the world. Now, this does not mean that you have to be economically poor to be a Christian. Remember, James is driving at internal attitudes. What it means is that your inward disposition has to embrace the actual poverty of your spiritual state. That's what it means to be a Christian. Nothing... In my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I too, the fountain fly, help me, Savior, or I die. This is the radical nature of the gospel James is teaching to the church. It says that we are not chosen on the basis of what we bring to God, but we are given grace as sinners. And that grace embodied in Jesus, the one that James describes and identifies as glorious. And it is because Jesus is so glorious in his person that James says to you, says to me, says to the church, do not hold faith in him. Don't purport yourself to be a follower of Jesus and at the same time have attitudes of personal favoritism towards other followers of Jesus. You know, the illustration, it isn't, you know, easy, or it isn't difficult to understand, and actually easy to apply rather broadly. And you need to think broadly about your inward attitudes and one of the ways to do that is to ask yourself, who is Jesus in this illustration? And then, and then who are the people of Jesus in this illustration? And remember, James is doing heart surgery. Outward action, important. Inward attitudes drive those, very important. And in both cases, if you have partiality Due to outward, experience, uh, outward appearances, it, you know what? You may not have a lot of room for Jesus. I'm going to say that again because, again, seasoned Christians, this may be like deflecting off of our... What were those shields that were in that, that sci-fi thing? Like they put up those shields around the ship. What? Yeah. That might be some of you right now with your your thinking about this text. Oh, he's not talking to me. I'm here after all. God's got to be impressed with that. This is what James does, though. He gets underneath the issue. And and, and he says how you think and how you act is of great importance. In, In fact... If you are kowtowing, you know, to those who can do things for you, whether they be, you know, well-dressed, gold rings, fine clothes, etc. What, what does James say in verse 6? You dishonor the poor man, but is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you are called? Well, let, me, let me ask a question. If after church, suddenly, you know, two or three people just started blaspheming. I mean, just in conversation, taking God's name in vain. That was a regular practice of people in our church. I mean, we'd get offended by that, wouldn't we? I mean, after all, we're not supposed to blaspheme, that's pretty clear. And we probably, you know, would say something. But James says, what if by your inward attitude, you, you mistreat people over here because they can't do a whole lot for you, but you lean into people over here because they can do stuff for you, is that not also a form of blasphemy in attitudes that drive action? And quite honestly, you know, we're kind of comfortable with that. That's harder to call out, right? That's harder to identify, put our finger on. That's why James does this for the church. So so what's the corrective? What's the corrective for these sins of omission in verse 26, where a person's not bridling their tongue, their religion really is worthless, where they are not visiting the orphans and the widows, they're not keeping themselves unstained from the world? What's the corrective for that? What's the corrective for the sins of commission, where we devalue the glorious Lord Jesus Christ by showing personal favoritism? Well, James has already given us the corrective in chapter number one. He continues to give us the corrective in chapter number two, and that is kind of summarized in verse 25 of chapter one. Look intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. After all, that's what you were born from, the word of truth, back up into verse number 18 of chapter number 1. He reinforces it in chapter number 2 when he brings the law to bear in verse 8, that you can fulfill the royal law. He calls it the royal law. And then again in verse number 12, that you are to act and speak because you're going to be judged by what he calls now the law of liberty. In four different ways, in just two chapters... James brings this balance between the law and the gospel and he offers it as the corrective for sins of attitude within us and sins of action or lack of action that we commit outside of us. And it is this law of God, and we we talked a lot about this last Wednesday night, how in James he gives us the two books of the law. Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And to fail to do either one in its entirety, James tells us, right? Verse 10, you know, if you keep the whole law, yet you stumble in one point. What are you guilty of? All of it. Kids are back to school, and uh, they're probably not taking any tests yet. But they will. And I always liked it when there was a bonus question. Because it if I answered the bonus question correctly, it could potentially get me from a D to like a C minus. Right? But you know, there are no bonus questions in God's economy. You don't keep the first book of the law... First five commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly. And then you don't keep the second one, love your neighbors yourself perfectly. You're guilty of all of it. I mean, that's rather harsh, right? I mean, what are we going to do this? The, the demands of the law crush us, except for what James writes when he tells us in verse 13 that yes judgment will indeed be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy but then in just four words he gives us hope that mercy triumphs over judgment I mean that's the answer to what um, Chuck read from Matthew 5 how are you going to keep the law perfectly Jesus said it Jesus would go on to say, if, you don't, um, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're in trouble. How are we going to ever have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? How are we ever going to keep the law perfectly? I can't keep my inward attitudes in check all the time. I weaken when it comes to loving my neighbor. I weaken when it comes to loving God. I'm in uh, I'm in you know, trouble. But James gives us help here, doesn't he? Again, the question in verse 5. Who did God choose? Who did God choose? Verse 5 gives to us in seed form the radical nature of the gospel. Because when when you say, well, who did God choose? He chose the poor of this world. Then you would have to ask yourself... Who is the most impoverished man who has ever walked the face of the earth? Some, somebody in a garbage heap in some third world country? Some person in a ghetto or slum, hungry, without clothing, no money? Saying, well, no, no. The most impoverished person who has ever walked the face of the earth is the one who had all the riches and gave them up in order to embrace poverty. And the kind of poverty that he embraced was our poverty on his body, our sin, on the cross, suffering as an offering for sin. This is how deeply Jesus embraces Our impoverished humanity, he himself becomes impoverished. God chose the poor of this world. And the poorest Jesus, hanging naked on a cross, bearing our shame and our guilt, and as uh, the people pass by and they mock him, they do exactly what James tells the church not to do, They make a distinction concerning Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And they make that distinction while he is in his impoverished state. Why? Because they're judging with evil motives. We like Jesus when he does what we want him to do. Not so much a fan when he shows us how we're not doing what we're supposed to do. The suffering of Jesus and shame and humility also then resolves the issue of the law because as God has chosen Jesus, Jesus in bearing our sin then is crushed by the law and yet through that crushing he sets us free from the law when we with real faith and repentance come to him in our own impoverished state and say, I have nothing in my hands. I'm a mess. Help me. I mean, is it any wonder that that James describes his older brother as glorious? What a glorious thing. Jesus did for sinners. And so we have hope. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And when we by faith trust, clothed now in the righteousness of Christ, we now made righteous, acceptable in God's sight, have become rich through the poverty of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a Christian, then, to be a Christian is to give obedience to both parts of the law. As you are set free by the power of the gospel through faith in Jesus. The gospel is brought to bear on us as we look intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. We look at it. We know we haven't kept it, and we turn to Jesus, and we say, Jesus, help me again. I repent of my evil motivation. I repent of my lack of external actions. Save me from myself. Empower me through your spirit, and help me today to live out your truth as you would desire me to live it Actions flowing from attitudes transformed by a continual encounter with Jesus. And that is, my friends, by God's grace, how we practice pure religion and become not just hearers of the word, but doers of it. And may God's grace help us to do just that. Let me pray. Father, uh, for your word, we give you thanks this day. How good you are to provide us with your truth. And Now before we come to this table, let us be ready to allow the Spirit to examine our lives. Lest we live deceived about who we really are. The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkee Town Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkee Town, please visit our website at www.durkeeTown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G.